Welcome to the Zen of Everything, a Zen take on life, love, laughter, and everything else. With Jundo Cohen, a real Zen master. That's me. And Kirk McElhern, that's me, a guy who knows a bit about Zen. Happy New Year, Jundo. Happy New This Moment to you, Kirk. Ah, this moment is always new, isn't it? It is always new, and it's 2020, which, uh, like good vision, is a time of clarity. The world is also filled with peace and love. We finally figured out how to get along together. All our problems solved. The lion has lied down with the lamb, and all is well. Isn't that right, Kirk? Someone hasn't been looking at the internet lately. Why? Has, has something happened? Oh, it's just, it seems like there's an endless something happening every day in recent months, the past few years, between certain countries and their politics and certain bellicose actions, and it's... Oh, you don't mean that little misunderstanding between the USA and Iran, do you? Yes, a very little misunderstanding, yeah. Well, you said this is our uh, episode 16, and hopefully uh, the world will still be here, and we'll have an episode 17 in a couple of weeks. So I'm hopeful. I certainly hope so. I look forward to it. Uh, I read history as an amateur every now and then, and in every book about an important time, particularly about a war, there's always a few chapters about what led up to that war and all the things. And we all know about uh, Prince Franz Ferdinand, who was killed, that sort of sparked World War One. And I hate to be a pessimist, but it kind of seems like we're almost there. Well, you know, the Buddha, Dogen, all the great Chinese Zen masters never figured out how to prevent war. They all lived in ages of war. One of the great stories of the Buddha, I I think I've told it here before, is uh, his own people, the Shakyap tribe, was threatened with annihilation by a king. So. The king, as his armies were marching down the street, the Buddha put himself in the road three times, and twice he persuaded the armies to turn back because he was the Buddha. But the third time, even he needed to step aside, and the armies marched forth and destroyed all his kinsmen. And it's one of those stories where even you could tell the Buddha was sad. The Buddha was grieving. He could not prevent war. And of course, Dogen lived in the age of the samurai. China was one great warlord after another, one emperor replaced by the next emperor. No one, not even the greatest Buddhist wise men, has ever figured out how to prevent war. Yet things have gotten better. Yes. If we look back in those more ancient times, the Middle Ages in China, or even earlier in India, um, it was pretty much a permanent state of war. Now, we can't deny that there is a war that's been going on since, well, 2002 or so, Um, but it's not the same kind of war. It's kind of a smoldering war, isn't it? Well, it's more serious in a way. Uh, 
there may be less war by quantity, I suppose, but still millions of people die in wars. And also the weaponry has become more and more terrible. We live in an age where we are truly at a crossroads. And if we don't figure out how to prevent war, uh, well, this could be uh, us doing our own selves in. But fortunately, Kirk, I'm not going to leave people hanging there. By the end of this broadcast, I will propose a way to prevent war once and for all. But let's not get there yet. Let's not get there yet. Let's not get there yet. We got a lot more to cover. So what is the Zen attitude toward war? As far as I'm concerned, war is bad. It's it's black and white. There's no... Well, is it really, though? If you're invaded by another country, then you're defending yourself. So is it necessarily bad to fight back? This is a matter of great debate uh, amongst uh, Buddhist teachers. And I'm going to summarize what I believe was the, the, the main attitude and also the attitude of some other Buddhist teachers who are more hardline pacifists. I think even the Buddha's attitude was, as he grew up in these kingdoms, he, he, he was a, a subject to, to great empires uh, that he could not change. Is his attitude was that war is terrible. War is a tragedy. War is man's, humanity's ignorance and greed. But war is somehow sometimes inevitable. We must face that fact. And also, even perhaps sometimes necessary to preserve life. The hardline pacifists would say that all war is bad. There is never a time to take up arms. But some would say that in times of self-defense or preservation of the innocent or preservation of what we consider civilization, there may be times, regretfully, to take up arms defensively. So it's a big debate. War and Zen have a complicated history, don't they? There is a complicated history. At the the time of 9-11, this became very obvious. Uh, The question was whether the United States was justified, for example, in taking some military response against the people who caused the World Trade Center to collapse. Some Buddhist teachers said, yes, there are times to do that. And other Buddhist teachers said, absolutely not. You know something? I'm kind of in between on this, and I'm going to say my own opinion on this. We resort to arms too easily. First, we should build schools and hospitals. And meet our enemies with love and tolerance. I know it sounds corny, sounds like very hippie, you know, peace to all, man, but I mean it. We should try to win hearts and minds, being a symbol of goodness. But then, if that truly, at the ultimate, is not successful, there may be times to Smite our enemies. Smite those who would harm the innocent. 
Now, the United States, you know, this is a very controversial thing to say, but the United States a little bit needs to share the resources of this world, maybe with some other peoples of this world who lack. Maybe a little bit we fight sometimes to protect our own consumerism and our own resources a little too much. At the same time, I believe that the U.S. system of democracy and letting people live in peace is worth defending. So the question is, is it worthwhile to take up arms to defend Western civilization, what we call democracy? I say yes. But can we do more to avoid war? I also say yes. That's my personal attitude. One of the things that we see in the Middle East, and we saw this in former Yugoslavia, is that many wars have origins that go back generations, if not centuries. I think in former Yugoslavia, there were references to a battle that took place six or 800 years previously. Um, I don't remember whether it was the Serbians, the Croatians, whatever, but that this was in their minds, that this had this had carried over from the past and had been told to generation after generation. And in many cases, these wars just become perpetual fights to a point that people may not even actually remember what the original disagreement was about. I, I'm, again, what I'm going to say is going to sound corny, but there's little difference between the situation between Iran and the U.S. or the Palestinians and the Israelis or many of these ancient conflicts. There's little difference between that and the neighbor who shares your lawn next door, who did something to you five years ago, he, he took your lawnmower and didn't give it back, and you can't let it go. You gotta let it go, and we have to start again, and we have to agree to share, and everyone has their, how to say, has their space and their room, and we all agree to just get along. And it's, it's true amongst nations. There's room for Iran. There's room for the United States. There's room for all the peoples of this world to get along and have their space. But sometimes some people want more than their space. Some people want more and more power. And when that happens, uh, well, something's got to give. And sometimes that results in violence. Yes, indeed. Yes. And as you said earlier, um, people want to hold on to what they have. Yeah. In many ways, the world is imbalanced. The, the United States, Western Europe, Japan has a standard of living that is astronomically greater than some other countries when you look at Africa, when you look at India even. And there's a certain unfairness about it. You, you know, you look at globalization, and we grew up through globalization, not that it didn't exist as far back as the Silk Road, but that it really took off in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. And as more goods are manufactured in lower-cost countries, it kind of spreads out the value, and those countries start rising up. I remember, you remember as well, when Made in Japan was considered to be cheap, right? Right. Um, that's because post-World War II, it was a country that was redeveloping. And then Made in Taiwan was considered to be cheap. Now, made in China is starting to be expensive, and some of the big computer companies are moving to Vietnam and even India to build their products. 
So right. in some ways, this is leveling, but in other ways, it's the wealthier countries that don't want to let go of what they have. Well, I proposed uh, a solution to all the world's problems that I will reveal towards the end of this podcast. And part of that will deal with this issue of people who want too much while others lack. Uh, but let's leave that again for the end of the actually, podcast in the meantime. Actually, this would be a good time to have a break for a sponsor where you tease people about something that's coming up later. But we don't have any sponsors Exxon. to this podcast. No. We, we well, should get our, Exxon to sponsor us. No, we wouldn't want Exxon. The, the sponsor, I guess, is TreeLeaf, and there'll be a link about, in the show notes to TreeLeaf. How about one of those big arms manufacturers? Should we... <laughs> Listen, I live in Japan for many, many years, and I used to think that, of course, being raised in the U.S., Japan were the bad guys. America was the good guys in World War II. And then I came to live here, and I realized that it was a lot more complicated. Japan in World War II, to some degree, felt threatened they thought that they were defending themselves because the big powers of America and Europe were going to cut them off from resources. So they, to some degree, wanted to play the same game as the Western powers. The Western powers had made colonies in Indonesia for rubber and in Vietnam and in China and in uh, other places around Asia. So then the Japanese came and they said, we want in too. We want our little niches in these other Asian countries to secure our resources. And that's when the Americans said, no, you can't play our game. We can play it. You're you not allowed. You can't have our standard of living. Right. So then the Japanese seized the European colonies, all in Southeast Asia and in China. Now, I'm not defending what they did. They were cruel. They were... Uh, barbarous sometimes to the local people. I'm not defending that in any way. But I'm saying that to some degree, it turned out that the Japanese felt that they had to do this. They had to have these colonies to protect themselves. So, you know, this gets complicated about who is justified. I would say, if I had been a Japanese in that period, I might have supported my country. And that leads to the subject of that book, Zen at War. Ask me about that book. Yes, there's a book called Zen at War, which talks about how Zen Buddhists reacted in the period just before World War II. I've never read it. What can you say about it? Well, it's a very interesting book. I wrote a couple of uh, articles a few years ago about the book. Uh, there's actually two books, uh, and the author, Brian Victoria. And I summarize it like this. Brian Victoria made a good case that there were some Buddhists, including some Buddhist teachers, Zen teachers and other kinds of Buddhist teachers, who were rabid nationalists, militarists, gung-ho. There were some. But that book, or those books, also exaggerated the case that it brought in a lot of people who were not rabid militarists and painted them with the same brush. He exaggerated evidence. He did mistranslations. He took quotes out of context. He sometimes mischaracterized people by innuendo. 
and he painted some Zen teachers, including some I'm connected to, like uh, Homeless Kodo Sawaki, uh, and he made them seem much more vicious than they were. And it wasn't like that. In uh, a case of Sawaki Roshi, for example, he wrote some articles that were in the Buddhist press at the time that if you take it out of context, it says, we were gung-ho to throw the bomb. And what the entire article says is, is there was something wrong with us. We were so deluded that we were gung-ho to throw the bombs. And Victoria's book took that out of context. The articles that were published in many cases showed that these were Zen priests who perhaps had some patriotism, supported their nation and culture when they felt it was under attack, and maybe a little too much, and maybe they were ill-informed. But when they wrote, they also wrote about how terrible war is, how it must be seen as a tragedy, and how also that the soldier on the field must do what he can in fighting to minimize to minimize the damage and to protect civilians. So these essays were actually a very mixed bag. In some cases, they were under censors, and I believe the authors had to write in a certain tone to get them past the censors. But really, if you read the articles carefully, these were not rabid nationalists. These were mildly patriotic, very despondent uh, Buddhist teachers who were feeling that they were had that the nation was at war and had to do the best it could. There is a fine line between patriotism and nationalism, and yes, and aggression, isn't there? When you feel that your tribe is threatened, you have to react to save your tribe. Well, it is a a, a sliding scale, but I think it is there is a a definite uh, difference. Uh, between, for example, saying that uh, uh, I think that our our civilization, our nation, our culture needs to be protected, our nation is under attack and has a right to defend itself, and someone else who says, no, our nation is destined to be the the glory and the leader of the world, and that was a very different uh, kind of uh, message. And uh, unfortunately, in those books, Uh, these people all got lumped together, which is unfortunate. When you look at the juxtaposition of Zen and war, they seem to be total opposites. But as you pointed out earlier, Japanese people aren't very Zen in reality. They're mostly, well, they they follow a mixture of traditions. No, but not many of them follow Zen. So in World War II, for instance, were there Buddhist soldiers fighting for Japan? Yes, yes, and many of them were the monks who were who were drafted, while technically still monks, they were drafted and they didn't have much uh, choice and put in the the army. Uh, but what percentage of people were technically Buddhists? Most Japanese, it's such a mixed bag that it's hard to say uh, what exact percentage. Most people are a, a little Buddhist, and yeah, and uh, but the priests who were drafted were, of course, real Buddhist priests. Now, there is a tradition, not just in Japan, but other places, of Buddhist monks who have sometimes 
taken up arms and formed monk armies. Now, this was a scene, for example, in Korea, when Japan attacked Korea many centuries ago. Many of the Korean monks formed armies to defend their Korean territory from the Japanese invaders. We're talking centuries ago. And also there was uh, many sects of Buddhism in Japan who I would say more than really theologians or, or real, how to say, spiritual people, these were people trying to protect their power. So yeah. they were thugs in robes. So Ooh, there were thugs armies. Thugs in robes, that sounds like a great name for a punk band. It, yeah, yeah. You know, war, uh, one thing, the only thing I can say about war is it has led to some great music through the ages. You and I remember, <laughs> you know. Yes, protest but, music. Yeah. Hey, war, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Remember that? But, yep. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, these monks would march out of the uh, monasteries once in a while and, you know, burn down the town because they felt their power base, their their prestige or their uh, their monastery was being threatened. But that was rare. Now, we do see it, too. We see some militarism in Sri Lanka, for example there were militant monks. And now we're seeing it in Burma to some degree uh, against the Rohingya people. Some of the monks are really very violent, but I don't think that's Buddhism. This is just human beings who happen to be wearing robes who act, you know, like uh, other people and uh, for better or worse and unfortunately for worse. The French have an expression, the robe does not make the monk. No, no. And you saw this in the churches and with uh, all other religions and and even uh, atheists could be, uh, you know, the Soviet Union was technically an atheist nation, and it was, there were wars, wars, wars everywhere. No one is spared this. And uh, if you look at the history of Tibet, uh, not a peaceful place. Yeah. And many of the, uh, the earlier Dalai Lamas were not quite as pacifistic as this one. And even this Dalai Lama, has, if he's been quoted as saying that sometimes war is justified. Yes. He said that after 9-11. Okay, so we're getting near the end of the episode, and I'm looking forward to you saying what the solution is to prevent war. Well, I, I want to present, too, one thing we have to cover as Zen Buddhists is, as that song so, is, you know, what's war good for? Absolutely nothing. But we say that war comes from emptiness. There is a perspective, and we always have to keep that in mind for Buddhists, that me versus you what I want and what you have, the divisions between us, the anger and violence are all swept away in emptiness and peace. This is true. There is a perspective where human beings down here in the world, we fight because we feel that we're separated into friend and enemy, rich and poor, what I want. There is a perspective or a taste or a realm where all this is, is swept away. And that's true. When we're sitting Zazen, there is no war. There is no death. There are no suffering children. I think now, I see where you're going. Yeah, now, now, getting back here in the world, though, oh boy, are there suffering children, and there are bombs that explode, and there's rich and poor, and there's me and you and my country and your country, and that's where the problem is. So is Buddhism just going to go off into that realm where... None of this exists. We can. We live down here. 
The Buddha sometimes proposed that uh, this world was beyond fixing, but many later Buddhists said, no, let's try to fix what we got here. And I got a proposal for it. Ask me what Go my on. proposal is. It's crazy. What is your proposal, Junda? Okay. I believe that violence, excessive anger in individuals, is a disease of the mind, just like any disease, like diabetes, like cancer. I believe that we will find medically, physiologically, the triggers within us that cause us to want in excess, to get angry in excess. Notice I say in excess. I don't say, you know, getting a little mad about something. Is I, don't, I get a little mad at you. I don't take a rock and hit you in the head. Okay? Exactly. But there are sometimes some people who the anger gets so uncontrollable that they resort to violence for violence's sake. I believe that we will find medical cures through devices, through altering DNA, through, for example, if there are violent individuals, we will implant in the body something that will detect the hormones rising and the brain waves of anger and mellow them out. I believe this can be controlled. My new book, or it's going to be in a, it's, it's in process. It'll be available in, in a couple of years called Zen of the Future. It'll be available in the future is about this. But how is it going to prevent war? Ask me how it's going to prevent war. How is it going to prevent war? I think people are willing to do things that give them pleasure. And the only, I mean physical pleasure. We eat chocolate ice cream. We go to movies because we like it. It's fun. We have sex because it's fun. I know Buddhism sometimes has the image of saying that people should not have too much fun. But I think people are basically driven many times by what gives them pleasure. We have to find a way to administer these treatments and medications to people voluntarily because they will choose to take them because it feels good. For example, if we, I know this sounds like a pipe dream, but you know, we're living in a world where technology is making pipe dreams come real all the time. If there was a pill that made people just more loving and wanting to live together and willing to work out their problems, made them all a bunch of hippies, I don't know, okay? <laughs> and they took this pill, and you'd say, well, you know, we got this pill, and it really works. It makes people less warlike. But what are we going to do? We're going to force it on them? We're going to tie them down? And No. If they took this pill and the pill was designed to be, well, let's say uh, uh, orgasmic, <laughs> just wonderful, it makes them feel good. People will voluntarily treat themselves to remove their warlike ten tendencies. And if this is done extensively, the human race will voluntarily choose to remove from the human body the capacity for war. Now, there are a bunch of catches, and I know there are all kinds of problems. If we don't all do this at once, for example, if, if I have an enemy, I want him not to fight so I can come in there and capture him, right? Yep. So there has to be a way that we all do this at once. I realize this is, there are some things to be worked out, 
on this. Yeah, there's a novel that's kind of like that. Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, where everyone is sort of placated with a drug called Soma. You know, I people read that and they said it was a, a tragedy. But I read that and I said, you know, that's actually not a bad idea. Now, some of the things in that book, it was done for, you know, so industry could keep people passive and keep basically people working as slaves. I'm not talking about that. Part of the treatment is, too, we have to make people more easily satisfied. Physiologically, people will be content to have less and will want to be seeing their neighbors and other people in the world have their due. Everyone in this world has a right to basic food, education, to live in peace, health care, to have clean water. These are certain, as far as I'm concerned, inalienable rights. And I believe that we can also administer these pills or these treatments voluntarily because it will make people feel good and will also make them more caring about others. Let me put it this way. Is the reason I call the book Zen of the Future is because this is the Buddhist dream to turn people into more generous, peaceful individuals. And Buddhism has failed. The meditation, the practices, all the preaching, all the sutras never quite got the message across. This is the first time that we will get people to voluntarily become good bodhisattvas. And you don't even have to be Buddhist, because I think much of Christianity also wants people who live saintly, good, charitable lives. This will be making people more charitable, more peaceful, according to the Christian vision, according to the Jewish vision, according to the Islamic vision, and the humanist vision. We all want people who get together, live in peace, and share. We will get people to do it by making it pleasant. They will choose to be better. That's my solution, and I know it's wacky. <laughs> okay, Jundo, I hope we're back again in two weeks for another episode. Um, I trust then, we will be. Where do we go from here? Hopefully into a future of peace and getting past what, whatever's going on. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. Please give us a rating. Tell your friends. You can check out past episodes at our website, zen-of-everything.com. And if you want Jundo to answer your questions, send us an email at podcast at zen-of-everything.com. Thanks for listening.